Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes! Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Be the Right Club Today podcast. Uh, one of our most uh, listen to podcast. One of our most popular podcasts was with our good friend right over here, Mr. Raymond, Doctor Raymond Pryor. Always mess that up. I always say Mister. Raymond and, is just. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been blessed. We're here at the academy. We're here in House Bay, and we've been blessed to uh, get get uh, Doc to come in for a couple of days and spend some time with us. So we wanted to all sit down and, and shoot something together. Raymond, welcome. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. Appreciate you. So we've been talking off air a little bit about the struggle. And that can be all-encompassing, right? That can be golf course. That can be life, business. You know, one of the things that that you and I have been talking about a lot is how kids need to, growing up, need to feel some struggle. Um, Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about, you know, and then how in in your situation and your experiences and what that struggle looked like. And just from a psychological standpoint, how do we deal with it? What does it look like? How do we grow from it? I think you use the word struggle too often we think of that as a negative word or like a bad thing you know there's not a an eastern philosophy a western religion a scientific theory uh in terms of psychology anyway that doesn't acknowledge and embrace struggle it's part of life if you want to get better at something whether that's a sport an, a knowledge area a relationship whatever it is it's going to include some struggle that's going to be there's going to be some heartache there's going to be some rejection there's going to be mistakes there's going to be loss there's going to be failure involved and i think too often we look at those things like they shouldn't happen or that it's a bad thing if they are um, and so just overall i think it's important for us to just i don't want to say embrace struggle but understand like it's required for growth period and we don't have a choice to not struggle in our lives there's not a human being that's ever existed that hasn't struggled and if you're going to play this game struggle is baked in the game is literally designed to try to make you struggle physically strategically psychologically etc and so to your question about young people if we as adults don't let them struggle and allow them to continue to work through it they don't learn the skills or the resilience and even um, the relationship with struggle that allows them to move through it and learn from it think about um, a toddler learning to walk if every time it falls, you pick it up and don't allow it, it'll never figure out how to pick itself up and actually learn to walk. There's not a child in the world that doesn't learn how to walk eventually, given their you know physical abilities, if you let them figure it out. And of course, we might help them and encourage them along the way. But if you picked your kid up every time they tried to walk, they would never learn to walk. That goes for you know kids learning how to deal with conflict, how to deal with learning and not maybe doing so well in school, all the way to the struggles that come with playing golf. It's important for us to support people and help them through it. But there's something to be said about we're doing things for them that take the struggle away, that then essentially like we don't build up a thick enough skin to be able to deal with it later on in life when we have to deal with it on our own. How do you think that with golfers, do you think we try to avoid, I mean, we're we're almost, you from a playing, from a professional playing career, do you think you were, almost predisposed to trying to avoid struggle at all costs. <laughs> that, yes, totally. I laugh because we spend our whole life trying to be the best we can be and skirt trouble and struggles and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, every time I struggled, you know, 
I was, it was pointed out to me by somebody and I didn't need anybody to point it <laughs> out right. to me. That's right. You know, I was, I, I was well aware I was in the middle of it. <laughs> what, what's interesting to me, like if we're in the, the business world, take golf out of it and we have a bad day from a business perspective, we're not going to change our life. Right. It was a bad day. I had a rough day at the office. Right. You're going to typically go to sleep, have a cold beer and, and, and wake up and be ready to go the next day. Right. Typically, if it's a, a long term pattern. Obviously, some things change. But one bad day on the golf course could literally change your life if you if you're weak enough to allow it. Right. It can it can. I was a panicker. I've talked about it all the time on here. Right. But that's the that's the scary thing about golf is one one bad shot. Think about what 12 at, at Augusta did to Jordan Spieth for, he, you know, he may not say it did, but like that one result, 10 at Augusta for Rory. He snap hooks it, should have won that tournament, he doesn't. And there is such a long-term effect from one bad swing, one bad well, shot. Well, that's, that's where I struggle with the mathematical equations in the game. You know, I mean, I'm just not, uh, you know, mathematics says you should go for it all based on whatever the parameters are. Yeah, blackjack rules. Yeah, yeah the, and I personally think there's a gut feeling that has to be dealt with because if you don't deal with that and you make the mistake, you're going to live with that forever. And I, I really liked what Cam Smith said in the interview after this last weekend about his shot on number 12. I just made a bad swing. And, you know, we make bad swings because of various things. Maybe a puff of wind came up that he felt, and he felt like he needed to get on top of it a little bit more or whatever. I don't know what it could have been, but a lot of things cause a bad swing. But if you get so marred in the what you did there, you know, he it looked to me like he put it aside. That's what you'd be trying to get him to do, right? Yeah, so when we struggle, which we will, like you right. said, we make mistakes. Struggle can include the physical and emotional and psychological effort that we have to put into something. It can also just be we experience setbacks and failures, rejection, bad shots at yeah. terrible times during golf tournaments. Yeah. When we get bogged down in them, that's also what we're trying to avoid. So we certainly wouldn't want to take out struggle from people's lives because we want people to be able to learn that when I struggle, how do I work my way through it? And one of the ways that we can work through it is learning to experience a setback and move forward from it and learn and move forward. When we don't give people the opportunity to struggle, it's difficult for them to figure that out on their own through their direct experience. And then it becomes really susceptible for us as soon as we are struggling or experience a swing like that in a moment like that to then try to revamp and redesign the whole thing. Yeah, because at that point, the brain's trying to protect you from it happening again, right? Especially at the at the most critical moments. And that's the, that's the part that's fascinating to me when it when we struggle or when we fail at Greg Norman, I keep going to the Masters, all these Masters thoughts, highlights keep popping up, up in my head, but Greg Norman at the Masters, I remember Hunter Mahan flubbing a chip at the President's Cup, and that really messed with him for a while. You know, how do you get your your clients, your, your uh, students to overcome when it happens? Obviously, we can slough it off at the range, right? But when it happens at, that, at the biggest moment, how do you get them to overcome it? Well, acknowledging it is the first part of it. I think we can try to sweep it under the rug, try to ignore it, and there's no such thing as a short memory. I know we use that phrase in sports a lot, like you gotta have a short memory, whether you're playing golf and you make a mistake, or you know, you're a wide receiver and you drop a pass. Like Our brain is not designed to have short memories, especially for negative events, because it needs to remember negative events to keep us alive. Yeah. Us acknowledging them and addressing it as a failure helps our brain go, okay, well, it wasn't that big a deal. Because as soon as we start pushing uh, events away, like I'm just going to try to ignore it, pretend it didn't happen, our brain's logging that as this is a problem. 
right? This is something to be avoided in the future, therefore gearing us right toward it, and it's encoding it more into our memory long term. The next thing we want to do is make sure that we're really aware of how we're explaining it to ourselves. So we've talked about this a little bit before the first time I was here. What we're finding with people who are really resilient is that they are optimists. And by optimists, I don't necessarily just mean they see the glass half full. It's why they see the glass half full. People who are optimists see the glass as half full, not because they think everything's great all the time, because they only see positive consequences to their actions and performance or that there aren't any negative. It's that they explain the events and experiences of their lives as only as long-term as they actually are. No more pervasive, pervasive is a fancy word of saying, I'm only gonna give it the amount of ripple effects it actually has and I'm not gonna add any to it. And they don't make anything more personal than it really is. And so if I told you, you dump one in the water at 12 at Augusta during the back nine in contention, that sucks. It's gonna last a while, people are gonna talk about it, but it's over when the round is over, which doesn't mean you don't feel it, doesn't mean you didn't like it, doesn't mean you weren't satisfied with it, but that's as, it only lasts as long as it needs to last. It's not a reflection of your overall game, it's not a reflection of how well you actually handle pressure in the long term, or all the ripple effects, it doesn't mean that your wedge game is terrible, or your, it's just, it was a shot that I didn't hit well, and I don't take it personally, meaning I'm not saying that I'm a bad golfer, that I can't handle pressure, that I'm a choke artist, etc. I'm assessing it as how well did I actually execute my skills, my effort, then it's only a short-term, temporary, non-personal problem. People are pretty resilient when they're facing difficulty, and it's only as long as it needs to be, it's only as widespread as it needs to be, and we don't take it personally. We're far less resilient, and struggle, and failure, and um, rejection boggles us down and we get stuck in it for longer when we explain things pessimistically, which is we make them longer term than they really are. We make them way more widespread than they really are, and we take things really personally. So for example, if you dump one in the water on number 12 at Augusta and you go, my whole round is ruined, I'll never have a chance of competing for the Masters or any other tournament ever again, I'm making it much longer term than it really is, I would say, I can't handle pressure, period. I've now made the ripple effect of that mistake apply to things that it doesn't actually apply to. And number three, I, well, I'm a bad golfer, or I'm not a championship golfer, and I've made a personal conclusion about something that is not personal. If I told you those are the two ways you would interpret the same event, we have no reason to be resilient with a pessimistic explanatory style because once you go, this is really long-term, really pervasive, and really personal, the next conclusion I'm gonna make is, well, why would I keep trying? Or there's nothing I can do. Right. Whereas if we see something more short-term, short more localized and more non-personal that goes, well, well, now I can go fix something or I can change something, I can make an adjustment and we deal with our current reality closer to as it is. When we explain things pessimistically, we're making it worse than it really is in a subjective way that we actually experience directly and that can keep us stuck in struggle for a long time. So if we let ourselves struggle and we acknowledge our struggles and our mistakes and our failures, but are mindful of how we are explaining them to ourselves, that's why we see the glass is half full or half empty, even after really difficult events or some of like the hardest moments of our lives. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, we would call this, for those who are listening who are interested in the psychology, these are what we call our um, explanatory styles. Optimistic is short-term, uh, localized and non-personal. Uh, pessimistic explanatory style is long-term, pervasive and personal. So, like I said, I wish I'd have known you. Yeah. <laughs> if I just if I can just add to that, with that 
what we're looking for with those two optimistic explanatory styles is a different level of acceptance. So we've talked about acceptance mm -hmm. before, really That's important. Next, yeah. Acceptance, to be clear, doesn't mean we like it, doesn't mean we're comfortable with it, doesn't mean we're satisfied with it, doesn't mean we're stuck with it forever, and it doesn't mean we don't care. It means we're dealing with our current, past, or future situation without preference, meaning as it is. Human beings are pretty resilient when we deal with our current reality, or our reality in general, closer to truth. The pessimistic explanatory style starts to add a lot of stuff that is just subjective and it gets farther and farther from reality in a way that is really threatening. Hence, the level of acceptance comes really, really far down and we get avoidant. Hence why we try to avoid those moments in the future rather than, well, if this happens, it's a short-term problem. If it happens again, it's still a short-term problem. It's not a huge ripple effect and it's not really about me. It's about how I played. Then you get to that same situation and it's a non-threatening event and then you can actually play freely the next time you get there. But if I explain it pessimistically, I'm going to worry about the possibility of it. And then when I'm actually there, I'm in threat response mode. I'm not in go play freely mode. So with Cam or, or any other player that had the situation happen on 12 at Augusta in contention, having a chance, especially in Jordan's, Jordan's situation where he was leading the tournament. So a year later, two years later, you're working with said client and he's got a one or two shot lead heading into the back nine of Augusta. Mm -hmm. He knows it's coming. It's so deeply rooted in our brain to say, avoid the water, avoid this happened. It's going to pull up the memory banks are there. Just it like is. you said, you can't avoid it. And that's the one thing that talking to guys like you, some of the other sport, sports guys we've had on sports sex guys, like the brain is doing it to protect us. Um, how do you get them to get through this? How do you, it starts with your level of acceptance. And that's where I was going to yeah. say, you have to accept that you may hit it in the water again. You, you might, um, it's in sport, it's a bit of an outdated archaic model of the way you approach success and avoid failure is to just make failure unacceptable and something that I'm just not even open to in any way whatsoever. And what we're finding with that is that actually creates a situation where now we are multitasking between trying to avoid what we don't want to happen and pursue what we do. And this is really important because we can't do both at the same time for two reasons. One, we suck at multitasking. Human beings think we're good at multitasking. We are not. And the second is if we are faced, our brain has the option of pursue what you want or avoid what you don't, it is designed by its nature to choose avoid. No matter how much we go, no, no, do this, your brain goes, no, nah, take over, safety first. Hence why when we're in those, in those situations, if our level of acceptance is low and avoidance is an option, our brain will choose avoidance. And that's really important because that takes us out of being present. The power of acceptance is that we deal with our current reality and it grants us access to the present moment. If we don't have um, a high enough level of acceptance, we're trying to avoid a future that we don't want. And then hence the multitasking and then we're not actually present when we're doing it. And that plays a really important role in a skill sport like golf because that creates brain activity that actually starts to disrupt our physical motions. Specifically, it dis disrupts the sequencing of physical motions, pretty important in golf. It disrupts our ability to apply the appropriate amount of force, speed, right? Speed, right? Yeah. In a sport where you can hit it too far or too short, also on, really important. On a hole like 12. On a that. hole like 12, which is really narrow. Right. And it also makes it more difficult for us to visually and attentionally be focused on an external target, whether that's an intermediate target, a target in the distance, a place where we're trying to land a ball on a green or a putting line. For the reason being, our brain is looking for ways to avoid what it doesn't want to happen not focused on what it does want to happen. And so without acceptance, I mean, the optimistic explanatory style and the acceptance that it creates, credible acceptance, 
is what grants us access to the present moment. And it is at the heart of like the research around what makes people resilient and present and high performing, high functioning, happy, healthy human beings revolves around acceptance. For that reason, there's just so much that revolves around it that allows us to be, and it's not trying to avoid discomfort and uncertainty, which we cannot avoid. So to your question, acknowledging it, acceptance of it and acceptance of the possibility that it might happen again is what allows you when you come to that moment again to have that memory without it being something that necessarily prompts a defensive response from you where you can go yeah that happened possibility that could happen again and because i'm open to that and willing to accept it which again doesn't mean i would like it would want it be satisfied with it doesn't mean i don't care it means i would go okay and then my brain can go well if that's okay I can prioritize what I want to do without trying to multitask between avoidance at the same time. It's, it's so interesting to me because you talked about acceptance a lot, right? And and we always viewed it a lot of times as acceptance after the shot happened, right. like accept yeah. whatever our belief was or our commitment level was. But to me, and we had this conversation a couple of weeks ago about 18 at Sawgrass. It was right after Sawgrass. And it was like, I would have never in college, high school, mini tour, mini tour, would have never stepped up on that team, been okay with it in the water. Yeah. Never. Like, you just, a good player, you can't do that. You, you got to avoid the water yeah. at all costs. Let me, let so me I, clarify. Not okay with. Sorry. Accepting of. Yeah, and that's yeah, yeah, different yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. okay I, makes it sound like either I don't care I don't, or that I, I would like it, it to happen. I don't want it in the water. But like, there, for me to make a good committed swing, there is a, there will be a percentage of golf balls that go in the water. There has to be. If I had 100 balls there, I'm going to, to perform my best, I'm going to hit a couple in the water, right? right. I never viewed it like that. So I was going to avoid the water at all costs. And then that brings way right into play and it brings more left into play. Yes, it does. And it's even hearing you say it, it's a freeing thought, right? Like it frees you to say, let's go make a free golf swing and, yeah. and let it go. Your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I've been on the tee on 18 when I needed to I was going to say, there's one of us here who's <laughs> actually played that hole. And, uh, you know, I. I never thought about hitting it way right. I never thought about hitting it in the water. All I thought about was, I have got to be right down there. Yeah. That was the only message I sent to my brain. And, I mean, Freddie started telling me that as we walked off the green on 18, how you're, you know you're the best driver here this week. You know that. He said it no less than a dozen times from the 18th green, I mean, from the 17th green to the 18th tee. And I, without hesitation, pulled the driver out and aimed it right down the left-hand side I never dared it to go in the water, and I never dared it to go right. Mm -hmm. I said, that's where I want it, right there. Yeah. And so you were I, not multitasking. I was not multitasking. Yeah. That's the point. That's what I kept sitting here thinking. I wasn't multitasking. And it's hard to get to that point, though. I'll have to tell you that because, and I talk about it a lot by reducing the size of your world. You know, if you take in the whole world, if you take in everything that's around you, you start multitasking because you're aware of the everything that can happen wrong. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know. This, this is a hard game. It's a hard mental game. Yes, but yes. Well, it, I mean, Pete Dye, I don't know if he majored in psychology in college, but visually he knows how to create uncertainty and doubt. Right. right? And if you do that and you're not aware of that or, or you're prone to then going, if, you're, if you have a low level of acceptance playing golf courses that are particularly visually uh, challenging and, and create doubt, that's a really tough course to play for you because ultimately what you're going to do is he is creating a situation where you are being triggered to be defensive visually all the time. So I'd be curious to know all the people that don't like Pete Dye courses, what they are Yeah. from a mental standpoint. Yeah. You know, which category do they fit into? 
And imagine that a Pete Dye golf course is not very enjoyable to play if you have a very low level of acceptance and then therefore you're playing it through anxiety. Right. Any golf course yeah. would be less enjoyable. Well, that's where yips come from. For sure. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we've all, I mean, I'm not afraid to admit it on here. Everybody watching here, I've had some yippy moments in my life. Not a whole lot when I was playing the tour, but since then, where I don't play all the time, been pretty yippy with those wedges around the greens. That's why I admired what Scotty Scheffler did this last weekend. I thought he was unbelievable around the greens. Right. Um, well, and I think, I mean, anybody that's played the game at a high level for a long time starts has, has dealt with it before. You know, from you see Bernhard Langer putting with a bunch of different types of putters. Jim Furyk went to a bunch of different. I mean, you start to see that kind of breakdown. Um, Doc, my question for you, going back to like leading up to twelve. So for our listeners at home that are leading into a short-sided chip shot that they don't like, talking about yips or a tee shot that they've always played bad. They've always played a whole thirteen bad at their home course for their club championship. Self-talk. What kind of what what can we kind of like? write down little things in our notes or something to just kind of get us thinking correctly. Can we, we've preached before we talk to you, we preach process, 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 process. What are we trying to do? What's the, our next most important shot or our next question is where's the target? Like yeah. going kind of Gio Valiente on us, like target, target, target. What's, what are we trying to do? Can we over process it, process the negative, the anxiety, um, out process, maybe not over process, or can we self talk our way into being a bit more free and being accepting? You can, and again, the, the key with that is that your inner dialogue has to be credible. If it's not credible, you know, if you're telling yourself, just focus on the process, but underneath that, you're it's going, not, you better not blast this thing, wherever. Again, that has more credibility. What I think is more helpful for people in those situations that increases the credibility of their um, inner dialogue or their self-talk, as you would call it, is not trying to convince yourself that you're comfortable, everything's going to be certain, and everything's going to work out, but to have an inner dialogue that's more geared toward what do I want to do, how do I want to do it, and then also considers like what you would need to tell yourself to have a high level of acceptance. right? And if your high level of acceptance for a shot is really low, then either you have to increase your level of acceptance to hit it freely, or you've got to adjust where you're going to hit it, right? Like if I'm playing number 12 at Augusta and my skill level, aiming over the bunker is a bad idea, right? Because my skill level might not allow me that. Like even if I'm really accepting, I don't have that shot in the way that pros do. In which case I've got to adjust. Or if I've got a difficult shot, a difficult chip, I might need to not play a lofted club, etc. But acceptance has to be there. Presence has to be there. How people's inner dialogue sounds to get them there can vary, but I would never try to um, help my players develop a sense of like absolute certainty or total comfort over a shot that isn't comfortable or certain to them because again it doesn't have any credibility to it and our brain will favor what's most credible and if avoidance is the most credible thing then it will favor that well and we talked about on here in the first the, the first pod with you about nerve versus anxiety right. and we we we've got to be okay we'll perform better with nerves yes and so not being comfortable is is okay yeah. it's just Again, how can we make that free committed golf swing? That's how right. can we let go of future outcomes, as you put it? Um, I like to say there's no strings attached to the golf ball. You know, just 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 send it. Um, I'm sitting here thinking, what does the word permission mean to you? Permission. Yeah, it, it means acceptance. So it's funny you bring that up. I was talking with a tour player yesterday, and we were just talking about what does it mean for you to be able to credibly give yourself permission to miss? Because if we have permission to miss, we also have permission to pursue, right? Because if I don't have permission to miss, that means my acceptance level is low, I'm favoring avoidance, right? And so permission to fail 
is what gives us permission to pursue what we want, and this is the key, Hal, without a guarantee that it's gonna work out for us. That's what stable <laughs> confidence is built upon. Stable confidence, by definition, is permission to pursue what we want, not knowing how it's gonna work out. And if you're waiting for a certainty, which is I have to feel like I know how it's gonna work out, or I have to feel comfortable, which when we're nervous, or if you're playing in a competitive golf tournament, the likelihood is very low, our confidence is by definition gonna be unstable. It's almost as unstable a formula as I need a result of a shot to tell me how confident I need to be. It's, it's an unstable formula, but that permission is vital. It's another way of saying acceptance. It's critical, it's critical. I've used that all the time yeah. with people. I had a guy in here this morning that just will not, he's always, well, if I do that, what's gonna happen over here? Right. So he's never gonna proceed forward right? because he's looking at the possibilities that could come from it yeah. rather than, you know, making a change that might be positive, you know? That's right. Yeah, there's always some uncertainty. Yeah. Right? If we're not, don't have permission to experience uncertainty, we're always going to be trying to control the future, which we can't. And then again, now we're multitasking between yeah. time frames, right? So. And to me, driving range is control, right? Like, that's where we're trying, we're, we're trying to get comfortable and chasing comfortability, right? The, I think the driving range just from a psychological standpoint, it's just an environment where stable confidence is not required. Like the situation that you're in is conducive to um, to acceptance and groundedness because results don't matter. And there's really no bad shots. I mean, you can hit a bad shot, but there's no penalty for it. Then there's no reward for it. So it's a situation, it's just like playing a practice round. People play far more freely in practice rounds because the situation, because scores don't count, you get to hit a shot twice. Like nobody's really making uh, judgments and opinions about your performance from when scores don't count. It's conducive to ex to acceptance. It's situational acceptance and groundedness, and when, or situational acceptance, which allows us to be grounded easier. As soon as score counts, you walk to the first tee, and it's on record. The situation is no longer conducive to acceptance. You have to generate it on your own, which is what's difficult for us. You said it's hard. It's really hard to have a high level of acceptance when if you hit a shot, there is negative consequences for it. It is temporary, but it's not a second long. It's going to cost you. It's not so pervasive, but there is some ripple effect. If you hit one in the water, there's a water ripple and on your scorecard. <laughs> and there are some personal costs involved. If you're going to go play golf on TV, sure. there's you're going to be criticized if you make mistakes. You're going to be praised if you play great. There's financial risk. There's social risk. There's sure. you know, all of these things exist for us. Well, and, and so acceptance on, is harder when those things are real. You said on TV, but even even club championship, like some of the some of the worst fears are guys going shooting a million in a club championship 100%. and get, getting ridiculed by their friends, right? Like, obviously, how stakes were higher, but I think the average Joe feels the same or even worse pressure than probably those guys did. We as human beings are evolutionarily designed to value other people's opinions. And so when we're performing in front of other people, we're gonna feel that whether we're playing in the masters or whether we're playing in a club championship, his is, again, many of the stakes are higher, but that doesn't mean it registers any different. Some, some to, to what he felt playing in some of the most competitive golf tournaments in the world might be exactly or less than what somebody else feels on a first tee in front of other people. They were probably more anxious than he was. That's very possible, right? And so, um, to your point, acceptance when things count, that's why it's really valuable, because it's hard to do, and that's what also makes it so liberating when you play with it because you have created it when a situation hasn't necessarily allowed you to do that, which is why it's such an advantage for people who can create that and why their confidence is far more stable than somebody who's relying on, do I feel comfortable when I step up to the shot, which you may or may not.
do you think that uh, one thought that popped in my head there is like the average Joe's playing in two or three tournaments a year, where I was playing in thirty. Do you think that them only ha- them having three Super Bowls a year versus Hal having thirty tournaments a year? Do you think that that makes it even harder to do this because they they build up these events so much and they have to wait another three months before they get to kind of do it again? It can again depends on how you interpret it. But what I would say is one of the situations that makes it most difficult for us to be accepting is when we're running out of second chances. So if you only have three tournaments a year, it's not that different. I've talked to a couple of mini tour players. They're going to get into either an LPJ event or a PJ tour event this year just by an exemption or a qualifying, right? That's one chance. You know, yeah. no second chances. And if you take advantage of it, you could get your tour card. You could get extra status. You could do a bunch of things. Yeah. The situation is not conducive to, yeah. to um, being accepting unless you go in there with no expectations and you don't really care right. if you're playing with house money. But the bottom line is they all want to play on the top tours in the world, in which case I have a chance right now. And if I hit poor shots and it's sco- and my score suffers for it, and, and it's going to me, suffer. And to me, that's a perfect analogy between the range of the golf course. Because the golf course, you get a whole bucket of golf balls. Yes. You get a ton of second chances. So, yeah. again, you hit that one bad shot, you put another ball down and hit it good, sure. and that's the, that's the fake golf. Think about why the back nine of a major is – people say the back nine of a major doesn't start – or a major doesn't start until the back nine on Sunday. Yeah. That's because they're – that's where there you know you have fewer and fewer chances on yeah. Thursday if you have an ant round you got Friday to try to yeah. make the cut you got Saturday to try to move up and then even Sunday you're like well I got a front and a back yeah. by the time you get to the back that's where rubber hits the road in which case then the situation is not conducive to acceptance you have to generate it on your own and if you do you can play freely being nervous if you can't you'll play more defensively being anxious and it's tough to play well being anxious I was nervous the whole way. I believe it. Would you, you know. say edgy? Like just kind of on edge? Just <clears throat> hyped up. Yeah. Yeah, it's an elevated state of, you know, we would call it arousal in psychology where our physiologically we are elevated. Yeah. I mean, you know, I remember when when I won the PGA, I was nervous as I could be. Yeah. It was negatively affecting me on 12, 13, and 14. And finally on 15, put my head in a towel and I said, look, this is going to define you if you don't stop this. Mm. We have to get so laser focused from here in on what we want to do on each shot, which is what you've been saying. Yeah. And I mean, literally, I said to myself, okay, when I brought the towel down, the only thing I want to do is drive it in the fairway right here. That's all I want to do. You know, it's interesting. I've been sitting here listening to this. You know, the the whole distance thing has really bothered me. (laughs) And I I wondered why. No offense. I'd love to be as long as you are. (laughs) But but it's bothered me. Because, you know, I had boundaries whenever I was playing golf. I didn't try to go as hard as I could because I knew it brought on things that I didn't want. It didn't allow me to be as laser focused. I knew where my speed limits were. Mm. You know, I didn't drive too slow so people would run over me, but I didn't drive so fast that I ran over people. So that's kind of the way I drove the ball. I've always talked about golf is like driving a car. And it allowed me to drive to be known as one of the straighter ball hitters on the tour. Well, I wasn't one of the longest, but I wasn't one of the shortest either. It was kind of a laser type thing for me. I don't know. I'm sitting here. I don't even know how any of this relates. I don't even know why I'm telling it, basically. I'm curious. Hal, tell us a little bit about, like, what is it about the the, kind of this quest for distance that we're seeing in the game now that um, doesn't fit for you? Or, or at least, like you use the word, bothers you. 
for me. It doesn't bother me for the game. It bothers yeah, yeah. me for me. I got to stay within me. I see. And, you know, I mean, every kid that comes in here, I want them to be as long as God allows them to be, you know, whatever that is. Let's find out what that might be, you know, but let's not, we don't need any more than that, you know. We're not going to, I mean, I, distance has no end. I mean, when are you as long as you can be? Do you know? No one knows that. And it's kind of what we talked about Bryson, but it's kind of what's hurt, hurt Bryson because he wasn't ever comfortable with where he was at. Right? Exactly. And you start trying to keep training, keep training wins enough, enough. Well, and I got comfortable with how far I hit it. So I wasn't really looking for more until we started measuring it. You know, I, I can remember that tour stats. You know, that each week it'd be on the bulletin board. You know, who's in the top 10 driving distance? Who's in the top 10 total driving? Who's in the top 10 accuracy? Who's in the top 10 greens and regulation? It was all posted every week. And, you know, I, I didn't care about distance. And I cared about total driving because total driving meant you were pretty good at both. Well, I knew that if I was decent in length and I was decent in accuracy that was going to work for me and I don't know I, I just there's no end to that you know there's an 18 you can't hit more than 18 greens that's all you're playing <laughs> that's my point mm -hmm. you know and I knew every time I hit 18 greens and I did it quite a bit actually but I guess then if I could have said, well, I, I need to be in the, within 10 feet of the hole on all 18 grades, that, <laughs> that changes things, doesn't it? Right. So it's a different set of parameters for you with this philosophical shift from what you played your best at, that kind of there's some friction between not you not in general for golf, but for your game specifically, a, a search for just more distance for the sake of more distance, or even if that had improved your golf, would it would have taken you away from the things you did your best? Yeah, well, I guess the reason why I bring that up is because most of the people listening on here are not trying to play the tour. <laughs> they're trying to just be decent at their local course, basically. Or they're a high school golfer hoping to play. So, um, you know, so many people are dealing with trying to be longer. Trying to be longer. And we got architects that continue to build uh, golf courses that demand that. We've got golf balls that don't want to get in the air because they're low-spin golf balls. And if I can't keep it in the air, well, then I'm dependent on a firm golf course to be able to hit it long. You know, the average guy doesn't understand all that. I mean, I don't think. Do you think they do? No. And Well, another thing, too, that the one that gets me is now they're, they're all hitting their irons as far as they used to when they were younger and their driver doesn't go anywhere. I'm like, yeah, because now your seven irons a five iron. Yeah. Because you're holding five irons, so it's also tricking them. Because the lofts are stronger? Uh, lofts and the yeah. tech in the head allows the ball to get in the air a little bit more. So I just don't think – I think there's a, there's a uh, there's some understanding lost out there from the guy that's playing at the local club he doesn't understand all of the things that are working against him on what he's trying to do. I see. Do you see for younger generations of players than you, so whether that's people who are on tour now or even you know your college and high school players, do you see areas where you, where you, when you see them moving in that direction, I get the sense that distance is one of them, you feel like it's actually more detrimental to them than it is helpful for their development overall? That's a tough question. 
I would I would say for me, I would say it's age dependent. If they're the younger, no, they can push for a little while. But like if it, they're you know 18, 19, 20 in college, and you know a lot of it just you know what are their low scores? What scores have they shot? Are they hitting it everywhere? You know, there's a lot of kids that want to come in here and hit seven iron, 210 yards, and we'll both. You know, if we gave the same kid the same le- or a lesson on the same day, we were going to both tell him like, "Dude, you got to tone that down a little bit. Like, we, we've got to control this golf ball a little bit." And for me, it's all about the tools, right? Like, uh, hitting it long is a hammer, and we want to control the speed a little bit to have a wrench and to have an, different types of wrenches and to have some power tools and to have all those tools, right? Because as you know, you play and and how obviously and and you guys listening, you know that you don't get your stock numbers all the time. So there's got to be some speed control. Look at how many off-speed shots Scheffler had to hit at Augusta and all that stuff. So to me, it's you, well, you said it on the lesson we did where we were talking about cruising speed. And, you know, I think if you're going to play at the highest level, you've got to have adequate speed. Functional speed was what I was coming up to when we were talking about speed earlier. But I don't think that you can go full on max and be the best player you can be. But I think you've got to make sure you hit it far enough to play number 11 at Augusta that's at 520 now. And if not, you're going to have 240 in. Like, that's not a recipe for success out there. So there's there's a fine balance, um, and it's gearing more towards speed, but you also have to be functional and have to be able to hit the center of the cliff face and hit the right distances that you're trying to hit. So I think uh, agree with you that age has something to do with it. So every kid that comes in here, you know, we want them to be absolutely as long as they can be within reason and to where their speed is under control and they can reasonably hit it where they're trying to look at. But I give a lot of lessons to a lot of older people in here, and I'm trying to get them to slow down. I'm trying to get them to shorten their golf swing, and it's working against everything they're thinking Mm -hmm. to do that. And I'm sure you see the same thing. They say distance doesn't matter to them, but it's all bullshit. Excuse me for saying that, but it does matter. Yeah. And they can't get, they can't move to the next level because that is the underlying current within everything that they do. I've got to be longer. I can't sacrifice anything. So I get, correct me if I'm off course, I get a sense that part of your friction with the distance is not the distance itself it's the rigidity around it that it must be the focal point that other things become sacrificed for it to the point where it actually like you said the chase for distance is disrupting your ability to develop the tool set that you're talking about that is required to to play adjustable flexible golf that's exactly what i'm talking about i couldn't have said it better myself i've been trying to for 15 minutes thank you for putting it into those words for me but we we fight that in here i mean i had two people in here today that that was an issue with well and and doc we've talked about your golf swing a little bit right and you've got quite a bit of speed and one of the things we see all the time is when they come in and they're man you know chase or how we're not hitting very good we're struggling with this and that Okay, so we, we asked them to slow down and make an exaggerated motion just so we can reprogram motor patterns, all that mm-hmm. stuff, right? How far to go? It doesn't matter how far it went. Right. Did, you, did you do what we asked you to do? What was the objective? What process? All that stuff, right? Yeah. But instead, it, it went 10 yards shorter. Oh, I can't do that. I can't give up distance. It's like, okay, well, then go back to what you're, you've always done and yeah. what you're struggling with. Yeah. So one of the things that you might could address in here, I think this is really powerful. I can get people to make a lot better golf swing as long as their ball is not there. If they'll just make a practice swing, they'll do. And I say, okay, I want you to max out on what I'm asking you to do. They will love what it puts up on the screen. They'll love it every time. The minute I roll a ball over there, 
it changes everything. Yeah, there's a, there's a result involved now, mm -hmm. right? So you've talked about your process focus. You take out the possibility for a result. People tend to focus more on the process. And then also we have a hit instinct as human beings if you put a ball in front of us. But it's no different than if you watch people playing around, especially amateurs. They make a practice swing. You're like, man, that's a pretty fluid swing. <laughs> then they step up to a shot and it's different, right? And then, of course, if you add anxiety into it, which is I'm worried about where this thing is going to go or how far it's going to go, now our brain activity has disrupted our physical ability to make smoother and more efficient swings in the first place. Well, and research has shown us lately that the club is squaring at like 3,500 3, degrees per second right. at impact. So like this squaring of the face to try to hit a ball where they want to hit it is what adds to all this, all, all us being mental mental head cases and, and being result oriented and reacting to the ball sure. and hitting at the ball and all that all that stuff right well results matter to us as human beings right yeah. it's difficult one of the questions i um had with somebody i was talking with yesterday they were asking about how to improve practice for amateurs and for me the first thing that they can do to improve their practice is to use the result of the shot and move it way down the priority list of metrics that you're using right like where the ball actually finishes while you're practicing whether that's block practice or you're doing drills or whatever is far less important than are you actually doing the thing that you're trying to do and then waiting for the result to catch up by doing the right things. Right. And when we put the result way up here, it's not that the result doesn't matter, but when we're practicing, we put it so high up that we're missing all the stuff in between. And then we start trying to hit it, trying to hit it where we want it to finish up instead of actually doing what it is we're trying to do. I don't want to throw names around, but you were given a lesson to a very prominent golfer just a little while ago. He did not seem concerned with where the ball was going at all. He was simply concerned with what am I doing in my swing that is going to eventually allow me to, to hit the ball the way that I want to, and then I will worry about where the golf ball is going. It was one of the most, I mean, he probably hit what, 25, 35 golf balls in an hour? And it was one of the most efficient practices I've seen and lessons I've seen in ages, simply because he's partially not at all involved with the result, and he was more interested in how do I swing this club better, yeah. not how do I make the result better yeah. this fast. So... I say this all the time to people in here. If I could keep your brain right here on this green carpet, you keep your, that's one of the things that works against us is because God gave us the ability for our brain yeah. to go places. That's right. And it goes places all the time. <laughs> and if we can keep your brain right here in this little three foot circle, we've got a better chance of getting you to do what will produce the kind of outcome that you yeah. want. What I would even say with that, Hal, is just to prioritize this, right? Our brain has the ability to go all over the place, and that is a wonderful ability for us. It will do that more often when we prioritize something that's not in front of us, right? So when we make being present and focusing on what's in front of us when we're doing it the priority, our brain is far less likely to jump that far. Yeah. And then when it does, we go, well, well that's not where I want to be. And we typically refocus and narrow our focus sooner. Uh, and like you said, when you're trying to learn something and get feedback on it, that is super important. So yeah. so let's go into, into some of your players and, and talk about this prioritizing idea. I'm always fascinated with this, this scale of golf being mental, golf being physical. And if you talk to whoever you talk to, if, if you're talking to a nerdy golf instructor like me, sure. I'm like, it's all physical. It's all really, physical. But, yeah, right, yeah. It's fix your golf swing, right? And if you talk to sports performance guys and sports psychologists, it's all 100% mental. It's always a mental issue. You're shaking your head, and I love that because it, it can't be 100%. It just can't. How do you deal with your players when, when they say, Doc, I'm, I'm, I'm where I need to be. All the stuff mentally we've been doing, we're locked in. But the, perf the performance, the results still aren't great. Sure. When does it become... 
all right, you need to go see another instructor or when does it become like it is a physical issue and, and, and because the, the balance and the, the, those questions I think are so important for sure. I'm going to address that in two pieces. Cause you asked like what percent is yeah, 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 yeah. the percent is irrelevant. The order of operations is what matters. And I say that because whether our psychology is 1% or 99% of golf, which who knows what it is, just depends on what you're teaching. Everything is filtered through our psychology. We can't do anything physically without our brain allowing us to do so. That includes our involuntary stuff. So for my clients, I don't care what percent of their performance is psychological. I want to make sure whatever percent it is, is allowing you to do what you want to do physically. Sure. So we'll just, um, to second part of your question, we've talked about this a little bit earlier, high performance in general, if we're kind of just breaking it into a very general landscape, is a marriage of confidence and how stable it is and your level of competence. If a player is telling me and uh, and we have checked off the boxes, I am present, my level of acceptance is really high, I'm committed to the shots I'm playing, you know, all and chung 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 chung, and it's still not adding up, then it's a love then it's an issue of competence and we gotta go figure out how to get better. That, by the way, is a real fear for a lot of high performing sure. people because we don't like the idea that we're not as good as we think we are. And, and so what can be dangerous is if we go, or not dangerous, but scary for people is if I get out of my own way completely and I find out I'm not as good as I think I am, that can be a very scary finding for many people, in which case then you have to address your psychology around, well, what if I'm not good as good as I really think I am, so, which is an opportunity to get better. Sure, quick follow up on the competence. And you kind of answered a little bit, but could I? Would you agree that competence is is technique and skill set? Like it's, yes, it's kind of it's, both of those. I would kind of put it into a broader category. And again, I'm kind of narrowing psychology as the yeah. confidence part. And it's what impacts our psychology is not just our psychology, right? Like if you go hit 20 shots and they're all amazing, your confidence is going to get boosted. It's just not a very good primary source because it's unstable. So there are many things that impact our confidence and our ability to be present. And like we just talked about acceptance, some situations make it easier for our psychology to be higher acceptance. Competence in that I would include like your physical skill level, your ability to adjust and use those skills differently in different situations. In golf, your course strategy, like that is part of being a competent golfer, being yeah. able to manage a golf course. All the stuff off the course too. Like there's a reason everyone's wearing whoop bands and what's how competent of a recovery do I get between rounds? How well am I eating? What's my fitness level? Right? What makes you more competent at hitting the golf ball farther if you're looking for distance is how strong are you and how flexible are you? Yeah. How much speed can you create? There are a lot of things that go into each, but if we're talking about, you know, trying to narrow, well, where can I get better? It's important for us to go, okay, well, is my psychology allowing for that? And then what areas can be improved or changed? Right. And incompetency as well. Like if you're saying I'm playing really freely and I'm still hitting a hook, it's probably time for, for a golf lesson. Yeah. Right. Or if you're saying I'm playing really freely, I'm hitting good shots, but I'm running out of gas, yeah. then your fitness. And, and how I feel like you, we talked about this in a couple episodes ago, I was trying to get out like, what your struggles were mentally and you you seem to didn't have like looking back yours wasn't a too many times where your your brain got in your way sound like you were you were fairly fairly locked in and committed most of the time to what you were trying to do would you agree well at times you know uh ebbed and flowed a little bit it ebbed and flowed i uh 
when I could get myself laser focused on what I was going to do, and most of the time my struggles helped me get yeah. laser focused. Yeah. And I think that's really important. You know, some of the biggest highlights that I had in my life came off of some real low times. Mm-hmm. Like two weeks prior to winning the PGA, I lost a six shot lead, and I didn't think there was anybody in the world that spotted yeah. me six shots. I mean, I, I, no one could beat me like that, but yet it happened on national TV. Yeah. So that struggle caused me to laser focus. Can I ask you? Yeah. What did you What did you do? So you lose a, a six shot lead. That is ample opportunity for you to just absolutely undermine your own confidence, to doubt yourself, to do all these things. How did you respond to that? That even allowed you the chance to play well, you know, in the PJ Championship, well enough to contend, let alone win. How did I respond to that? I didn't sleep a wink that night. Yeah, I'll tell you that. So you felt it. I felt it. Yeah. It hurt bad. You know, I felt like I jumped into a, a fire. Yeah. And uh, I got up the next day. I had a, an outing that I had to play at Virginia Beach, and I shot 62 the next day because I had to prove to myself that, you know, that wasn't me. That was somebody else, which that did a really good job of proving that. I came back home and I said, okay, I felt like my swing got too long and I hit too many hooks. So I went to work on that. And by the end of the week, it was all on the golf course, a little bit on the driving range, mostly on the golf course. And by the end of the week, I knew I was ready. And I told my dad, my dad wasn't even scheduled to go with me. And I said, I tell you something, we're going to put this to rest right now. I said, I'm going to win the PGA at Riviera. And I said, not only that, I'm going to lead it from start to finish. Got out there and paired with Lee Trevino and Lanny Watkins. I'll never forget that because I love Lee and I always tried to watch everything that he did. And I opened with 65, leading the tournament. And it never looked back until I got to the 15, I mean, 12, 13, 14. I had four shot lead and I made three bogeys in a row. And I thought, here it comes again. And so I said, the thought did pop up. Yes, yeah, okay. the thought popped up. That, yeah. Hey, we cannot let this happen again. Now, what do we have to do to save this? That's when I got laser focused. I said, all I can do is drive. The only way forward is one shot at a time. Yeah. All I can do on this particular shot is drive it in the fairway. Yeah. I can't deal with what's going to happen next. I'll deal with that when I get down there. Yeah, so you grounded yourself in oh, those yeah. moments. Hard as I Grounded ground. meaning being present and said, what do I, what's in front of me? I got in that three-foot circle right there. Yeah, there you go. And, and that's it. And I wouldn't allow myself back out of there. Yeah. So if I'm kind of recapping from, we talked about struggle, you experienced some real struggle, a setback of losing a six shot lead. You felt it. I didn't hear you say I tried to ignore it and sweep no, it under the I road. felt it. Okay. So you felt it and allowed yourself to feel it. Right. Then it was, I'm not going to let this be any longer than it is. I'm going to go figure out what I need to do to do better right. or get better. And then I'm also, I, you know, there's a part of it where you say, I'm going to go show myself that I can do something different. Right. Yeah. Right on. Makes sense. Well, that's why I was sitting here thinking about this when you were talking about all that earlier. It's like, yes, that's exactly the ripple effect. Yeah. You know, what everybody else thought that has a big bearing on this. And, you know, I had to get in a three foot circle all the way around. Well, you talk about, I mean, you at the highest levels of performance, criticism is the background music to success. Mm -hmm. And there's a level of scrutiny and eyes and praise, by the way, that isn't as common in a lot of areas of our lives. Can you talk about what that experience was like for you? What worked for you? What didn't? The times maybe you got wrapped up in it, the ways you were able to know it, but you know, not let it infect what it is that you're doing. Can you just tell us about that a little bit? Uh, 
background noise is always going on basically and you know I listened to the people that I trusted the most that I knew loved me uh, but there was always somebody else saying something you know uh, it's easy to get caught up when people are praising you yeah you know that's that's the easy part yeah but when people are criticizing you that's what hurts um, I, don't, I can't say I dealt with the criticism very well uh, you know my the way I dealt with criticism was to retreat yeah and um, you know, I was always a little bit embarrassed by praise. You know, it almost, it made me, it put me in a spot where I, I wasn't comfortable. You know, I don't know if I didn't feel like I deserved it or what, but it was, it was uncomfortable to me. Uh, you know, I asked uh, Byron Nelson one time, I said, you know, what were you really trying to be? You know, I was interested in more than golf, you know. And he, he made the statement to me, he said, I wanted to be the best Christian I could be. I wanted to be the best husband I could be. I wanted to be the best golfer I could be. And I wanted to be the best man I could be. But he said, you know, I never put golf first. And that was interesting to me because I think everybody out there that wants to be first, they think they got to put golf first and be first. And, you know, I, I was guilty of that. Yeah. And um, all the noise that's going on around you, being able to control how you deal with that noise, and especially now. I mean, as you and I were talking about earlier, you know, we're living in a global world. You can get in touch with everybody who's criticizing yeah. you just by lifting your phone and up. And praising you. And praising you yeah. both. And, and you can see it right here. You too. can see it right here, right here. You know, I mean, I felt like the whole my whole life it was right there in front of me, but never like it is right now. Yeah. It's a different world when it comes to the access we have to other people's opinions about us and the things we do. Yeah, There's no doubt about that. Um, you had mentioned something in there about the people closest to you that you put your trust in them. How big was that circle for you? And if you're comfortable with it, who was in it? Where, when there's all that outside praise or criticism or expectations, who are the people that you, you use the word retreat? Like who are the people that you retreated to? The people that I knew to tell me the truth. People who were honest with you. People that were honest with me. But that's a whole different can of worms right there because, you know, I'll throw my dad out there. He's still alive. He doesn't listen to the podcast, I don't think. So <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, I I thought everything my dad told me was an absolute truth. You know, he knew it as his truth, but it was an absolute fact, basically. But I took it as absolute fact. Tried, tested, proven to be absolute uh, as a as a father and as a grown man and everything else, I know that's not true. But it was a long time before I actually had really come to grips with that. You know, I have actually seen where psychologists have written that a man doesn't become a man until his father is gone because he's still making decisions based on what his dad would think. And I certainly have fell victim to that. And, you know, I think uh, we talked earlier, you know, this retirement thing for me has really been difficult. You know, I don't I don't know where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing and, and where happiness lies. And, you know, it's difficult when you've lived a life. I mean, I mentioned to you earlier, you know, I was happy with a hotel room, a bed and a bathroom. That's that was my life, you know. 
and a TV, I needed a TV too, you know, but I didn't need anything more than that. I knew I had the golf course the next day. I mean, you know, I got to where I pick up uh, fast food on the way home. I didn't even want to go eat because I didn't want to listen to the noise because yeah. someone's going to say something to you that fit into one of those two categories. They're going to either praise you or they're going to criticize you. And, and they may not directly say it, but you feel it. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a tone to it. Oftentimes even a comment, Hey, you played great. Oh, you lost a couple on the back. Like, well, okay. Yeah. Great. So it's praise, but it's wrapped up in yes. feedback. Yeah. And you know, as much as I hated that in some ways I miss it too. Yeah. You know, I mean, finding the replacement for that. Yeah, I think it's difficult too because we. I don't know that there is a replacement for that, and and I, like we have talked about it before. You know, I've worked with clients in a lot of other sports who, when they leave that sport, there's there's a space that's not there that can't be replicated. And part of part of the challenge with that is there's not a replacement for it, and you have to, or what options we have available to us to explore. Well, what do I want to fill this space with? Not as a replacement, but as something different, and can be as meaningful or something. Uh, meaningful to me in my life, but replicating it's really difficult. Like, how are you going to replicate the, the top levels of golf or walking out of a tunnel on a Sunday if you play in the NFL? Like, there, there's no replication for that. And I don't mean to say that other things aren't great or fulfilling or better, but that is a very unique feeling uh, that is difficult to, to replicate in other. I mean, there's a reason why people uh, at the highest levels they retire and then they go seek high performance in something else. And they're looking for that competitive spark, right. and sometimes you find it, and sometimes you don't. And some some people need it. Other people's other people find um, find happiness and peace and fulfillment in other things. But when you take that thing away and you've built your life around it, like there's a space holder there. Sure. So I'd be interested to know what you think about this. You know, a lot of people think that those really bad shots stand out in your lifetime forever. In my life, that's not the case. I've hit really bad shots at inopportune times. But the shots that stand out in my mind were the shots that gave me the feeling of high. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, a hole-in-one on 16. I made the first one at, at Waste Management. I made a hole-in-one there, you know, and the crowd went nuts when yeah. I made it. You know, that I can still tell you what club I hit. I can still tell you the way the shot looked. You know, the bad shots that I hit in my life, they're, they're there, but I don't have instant recall of yeah. them like that. Is there a reason psychologically that that's that way? There can way? be a variety of things that go into it. I think that's the, how long something sticks with us and can be triggered in that way depends on our level of acceptance for it and how we encode that as a memory. If you hit a crappy shot in a big moment and you tell yourself, this is the worst moment of my life, I'm never going to live this down, it's going to haunt me forever, don't be surprised if in 20 years someone shows a replay of something or you just see that hole again and then that memory is going to come up. If in those moments you go, oof, that was a clanky shot, I'm going to move on to the next one and it's not a big deal or it doesn't have to be any bigger a deal than it needs to, then what happens is we start to encode more memories that are the ones that we want to remember than the ones. And even if those memories do come up, they don't have the same gravity and the same intensity or the same pull towards us. It's just a memory of an event that didn't go the way we wanted it to, not something, again, that has to be that long-term, that pervasive, and particularly the memories that really, I don't want to use the word haunt, but can stick with us in a, man, I just can't get away from this, are the ones that we take personally. And then that sticks with us. But um, we build memories in a variety of different ways, but how we actually experience that event directly, based on the psychological framework that we are experiencing it through, 
will depend very much how we see it later. Now, the great news is we can alter that. So we can, there's a variety of different studies that show you could take the worst moments of your life, and I'm gonna exclude like legit real trauma, but let's say it's golf related where you hit a terrible shot at a time that was just not good for you, for your golf game, and view it through a different lens, that memory starts to change and it becomes less triggering, or when it gets triggered, it elicits a different response for us. And it's a good thing that we can do that because a lot of our lives have ups and downs, good memories, not so good memories. But if we are really uh, pay attention to how it is that we are explaining those events to ourselves, the lenses through which we're seeing them, and the meaning that we ultimately give them, that's going to determine how we actually directly experience them. And I don't want to make that sound like it's easy, but it is doable. Yeah. Doc, I have a question for you about, you use the word competency, so let's use technique, skill set. We'll say that's that's my side of our, we have a student and that's my side of the student. Mm -hmm. Obviously your side's the, the psychological side. We talk all the time, like you don't ever have fully control, full control of your golf ball. They're going to have them flow through through great. Do you believe that you can have full control over, over your side? And I guess my second question or follow-up question to that would be, do you think your side's easier to get to a level and maintain the level? Or do you think this side's easier to get to maintain? Meaning, obviously, when we see Tiger make the runs that he went went on in 2000, his competency, his skill set side was 9.5 or 10, and his psychological side was at 9.5 or 10. And that's when you see Scotty Scheffler win 4 out of 6. Yeah. Do you have an opinion on which one's more difficult to get to that 8, 9, or 10 level? And do you feel like you yeah. have to work on both about the same? Like I know there's a lot of questions there, but yeah. I, there's just something I've grown on. A little bit of apples and oranges, but not that different of apples and oranges. Uh, doing Addressing our psychology is what I call our inner work. It's an ongoing process. If you really want to develop your psychology and train it in a way to allow you to be great at something, and by that I mean long-term development, performing under pressure and being grounded in it and also having a more fulfilling relationship with it. I think that is an ongoing process. So the idea that I'm going to sit down with somebody, we're going to go duh, 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 and check these boxes and then I'll see when I see it. Not very likely for yeah. the reason being just like our physical skill sets, they are influenced by a variety of different things. And it's our psychology is not necessarily 100% controllable. If you're having a great day, you're grounded, you're present, and I give you terrible news, your psychology is going to change. Yeah. Now, it's going to depend on your psychology how much it changes and what it changes to. Yeah. But if our psychology was 100% controllable, we'd just snap into flow state. And it's not. We can be grounded. We can be accepting. But our overall psychological state or specific, depending on whether we're actually performing or if it's our larger life, does is impacted by things outside of our control. Um, if it wasn't, then we all would never deviate from the things we're doing. We'd all get better this fast. Sure. We would never get distracted. Like our brain psychologically is designed to try to take in more information. And so there are a variety of things outside of just us internally that can impact our psychology. The key with having psychological strength is to be able to be aware of those and to adjust accordingly. And how our psychology is structured the skills that we develop within that and the relationship we have with when our psychology changes is really what's far more important. Similar to like, I mean, if you have, you have a, a legend in the game over here still grinding on his game later in life, 
that's not a skill set that you just set and forget, right? right? So, so we're going to ebb and flow through through competency, skill set, technique. We're going to ebb and flow through the psychological sure. side of things too. I mean, I, I like to tell p- players all the time, like this game, you, there's no consistency in this game. You're never going to be completely consistent. Now, I would say consistency is a bell curve, right? Or a, or we yeah. might in golf we might say a dispersion. It's going to slide. Right. right? There's yeah. there's variation within it. Nobody's a robot. Our psychology is the same. Yeah. One of the things that players, you know, if they're Raymond, I'm really struggling. The first thing, there are a couple things I always ask them. Like, first of all, what is your mindfulness practice like? You know, tell me what your inner dialogue is sounding like. Have you been doing the things that we've been talking about? And just like if someone comes in for a lesson, they're like, I've been hitting it terrible. The first thing you ask is, what, what have you been practicing? And yeah. how have you been practicing? And if we're not doing the work, it ebbs and flows more. And it's less, um, there's more variability that we aren't taking control of. And the same goes for our psychology. Like if, if you're not training your awareness to be present and in a non-judgmental way, then don't be surprised when outside things and internal things create more deviation for us. And by deviation, I mean our, our uh, emotional state gets elevated faster and more intensely. And then also our focus goes all kinds of different places. And then our confidence is going to be less stable. In that it, all, way. it all needs awareness. Your, your golf swing needs awareness and work, your, your mindfulness, all that stuff. Needs awareness work. is the first line of information processing for everything about us, physically, psychologically, neurologically. Without awareness, either something's happening, and if we're not aware of it, it's just happening and we're hoping it's in line with what it is we want. Yeah. And if we do have awareness, the type of awareness matters because if we bring a judgmental awareness to it, so in this case I would be talking about like the awareness of our own thoughts or awareness of the events around us, it's not just being aware, but the type matters as well. If we're really judgmental about it, we can make ourselves feel worse. And we don't do very well when we make ourselves feel worse. We don't have to feel great. But when we layer emotions on top of ourselves through by being aware of our thoughts and feelings or our mistakes, and then compounding them by judging ourselves for them. That would be, I shouldn't be feeling this, this is a bad thought, or I should be playing better, et cetera. Now we're adding to it, and ultimately the ebbs and flows get, you know, if we're talking consistency, like it starts to go like this. There's nobody in the world who is completely consistent. What we're trying to do is, can I gear my psychology and develop my skill set to where it gets small enough that I can be really functional with it, and also have enough flexibility that I can use it, maybe not exactly how I intend all the time. That being, I'm trying to hit a straight shot, but I might need to hit one that doesn't sometimes. So I'm curious. You've worked with all sorts of people, highly successful people, and they all have qualities that set them apart. Are they aware of those qualities as much as you are aware of what they do? Sometimes, and my job is in part to help them be aware of that. And I'm only aware of what people can tell me. You know, I'm an quote unquote expert on psychology, but I'm not an expert on any given person's psychology unless they grant me access to it. Um, But a lot of my work is helping people. Really what my work is about is can I help you gear your psychology in a way so that the things you're good at, you can do more freely. Because if you do them more freely, you're probably going to do them better. And also, can I help you gear your psychology in a way that is going to make the struggle of getting better better? And I don't necessarily mean feel better, but you're actually going to get better at it because your psychology is not getting in the way of you trying to avoid struggle. Yeah. So we talked a bit about title in this this episode about struggle. Um, Two questions, kind of for you to kind of wrap this up. Number one would be. How do we make practice harder? We talked about that a little bit with a player earlier. 
that you had a, I had a drill and then you you went up to my drill <laughs> yeah. and made it really hard. And then, uh, yeah, your drill was a little sadistic, but, um, and then the second bit I want you to go into from a parenting standpoint, you talked about letting kids, kids walk and how they, how they stumble and whatnot. But like this idea of how it's healthy to put, kind of push them to their limit and then see kind of how they, how mm-hmm. they react to it. Yeah. So to your first question, um, one of the difficulties with practice in any performance is that our, we know it's not, doesn't count. So there are things we can do to bring it closer, but bridging that gap altogether, we haven't figured out never, how to do it. Never going to be the same, right? For golfers, one of the things you can do if you're really trying to create pressure in your practice is play worst ball and do it with multiple balls to the point where you want to get to the point where when you're standing over any shot, you're feeling some pressure to have to hit it well. So with the player we were talking with earlier, it's three ball worst ball, which means if I'm going to hit a shot from a place where I really want to hit it, it means I got to hit three good shots in a row. And so we're creating a situation that is not conducive to acceptance, right? And being grounded because it's very easy for me to start thinking about the third shot I'm hit when I'm on the first one. And if I hit one, whatever, it's really difficult to be accepting of the fact that I still got to hit two more balls and I'm probably playing that one. Or I might have to play one that's worse, right? It's a little bit sadistic, but what it does is it provides us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be accepting and be grounding when it's difficult to do so. Um, in terms of for parents, we just say it's a general rule of thumb. The less we can do things for people when they are capable of doing it, the better. So essentially, don't do anything for your kids that they can do for themselves. If they can carry their own golf bag, carry their own golf bag. If they can schedule a lesson with a have them schedule a lesson. When we start doing things for people, they don't have to struggle to figure out how to do it, but also we're robbing them of the opportunity to go, I can do hard things. And that is like self-belief is not just, I think I can do it. Real self-belief is, I think I can handle hard things and I can deal with them. And we rob that of people if we don't let them try and fail and help them along the way. But trying and failing is like the best thing we can do to learn. What we want to do is push people to just outside of their current skill level for practice. Like the most efficient practice for us, and this includes golf, is we have somewhere between a 60 and an 80% success rate for something, whether that be like I'm doing a motion in block practice or maybe even a target drill, where I'm going to have to really focus and buckle down on what I'm doing to be successful, but it's not so far out of my current skill level that it's that it's, that it's impossible, right? Like here's the danger of perfection. Like yeah the success rate is not attainable and therefore it becomes very easy for us to give up as soon as it's not that. So we want something that's just outside of our current skill level and then let them struggle and see how they go. And if they need help, then we can provide some, some feedback and some, um, some information or maybe even teach them something. But if they can do something on their own, let them do it for the reason being they learn to struggle. They learn to deal with failure and success. And when they do succeed or, execute the way they want to or do something that they weren't sure they could do, we give them the opportunity to go, I can do hard things. And that is where resilience is built from because resilience is not everything's easy for me and I walk through life. You know, That's essentially the formula for entitlement. Self-belief and hardiness and resilience goes, I'm pretty sure I can do hard things. I'm not totally sure, but I'm pretty sure. And then we try hard things. And when we try hard things, we get better. And if as adults, again, when we just do stuff for people, particularly young people, we are robbing them of that opportunity and they are everywhere 
if we let them have it. You know, we were talking about you're uh, teaching your son to right. ride his bicycle, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you hold the back of his seat the whole time, he can't ever figure out, I'm pretty sure I can balance this thing That's and ride. Exactly right. right. But also, if you just shove him down a hill, he's going to eat it, and then he's going to hate riding his bike. Yeah. So if you hold it long enough, let him ride, and you're kind of near him, and then he goes, oh, I can do this. That's what happens when we let people struggle. And he might fall a couple times, yeah. but you're not putting him in a situation where he's going to eat it and bust his teeth, yeah. but you're also not doing it for him. And now he has the opportunity to go, I can ride a bike without you having done it for him. It's one of those things I, I keep going back to this thought of like, and it's not the best situation, but when like a, a person loses parents at an early age or something, yeah. it has to be so self-reliant. And a lot of times they come out of it now, uh, psychologically, psychologically, they're, they're a little bit, it's not the ideal way to do it, but they had to become so self-reliant yeah. that they become very it's successful tough. in what they're, what they're trying to do. Uh, tough environments. <laughs> Typically, people come out of them in two directions. Either it's too tough and they yeah, they, they flounder in it, yeah. or they come out really tough on the other side. Even if we look at some of the highest performing groups in the world, which are usually high ranking, um, sorry, high efficiency military units, they are really tough. Yeah. But they are not so far out of where people are that it's easy for them to quit or it crushes them altogether. Right? Like they are pushing you as hard as they possibly can. To that edge before you break and then that threshold gets higher and then they're going to push you higher yeah. and then at the end of that training like there's there's no doubt why people who come out of navy seals training are like crazy tough people yeah. the environment has helped them train that and then of course you know they have a value system yeah. um and a level of acceptance in a zero-sum game that it that most people can't really fathom right so i think that's what tiger's dad did to him I yeah think he pushed him to the bendy he bent him he didn't break him and i think uh his, I mean, without he, Tiger had a love for his dad that, yeah. you know. So, it's such a balancing act between healthy and 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 destructive. It, it can yeah. be right, like, and there's you know, for parenting is really hard. Like, just for the record, it's really hard <laughs> because finding those those lines aren't aren't always so really they're tangible. Not they're not always black and white. And how far is it pushing them too hard? versus when are the times where they actually need, you know, to maybe even be coddled a little bit. And navigating that as a parent is really difficult. You know, so the general rule of thumb is if somebody can do it on their own, let them do it and let them struggle with it. But there are times as a parent where you got to swoop in and, and do parent things. And there's also times when it's like, let me get out of your way so that you can do something. There's a time to coddle and hug. There's a time yeah. to let them figure it out. That's right. You know, and, and if we're talking psychologically, that beginner's mindset is, um, Really, like we learn at a crazy fast clip in yeah. a beginner's mindset. It's essentially just a trial and error mindset with high levels of acceptance and no worry about what happens, just curiosity about seeing what happens. Yeah. There's no adult intervention in a beginner's mindset. Yeah. Right? So, the more that we can let them explore like that in a lot of things and then only intervene as needed, you know, we're giving them a chance to figure things out on their own. And then when they don't know, they typically come to us and say, What do I do here? And that's a great opportunity for us to teach and and learn from them too. Well, Raymond, I said at the beginning of this that we were blessed to have you down for a couple of days and uh, you were a rock star on our first episode and you were again today. This was, this was great. You are, uh, you're incredible at what you do. Keep, keep doing it. I'm glad, I'm glad you've been uh, kind of, you're, you're a part of our, kind of our team now. Like you've been, you've been a, uh, an asset to us, even just conversations I've had with you. And uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for sitting down with us. It was awesome. Yeah. I appreciate you both having me. It's well, been great. Uh, I, I, I don't even know how to say this. You're ahead of the game. That's all I'm going to say. You say it so eloquently and so easy to understand. And uh, 
I hope everybody out there is grasping what he's saying because it's, it's rock star status. Thank you both for having me. Awesome opportunity, and uh, uh, I hope we can do it again soon. We're definitely and I appreciate the compliments we as well. Thank sure. you. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Be the right club today. Yes!